Elijah, I'm going to need to rely on you to advance the slides as the batteries are not doing what they're supposed to do. We're going to put a picture up of the ocean and I want you to imagine three people who are standing on the seashore looking out over the breaking waves. Three quite different people. The first person is dressed in a wetsuit, has a surfboard in arm and is looking at the glassy waves just longing to get out there into the surf, imagining the ride that will take place, imagining the excitement that there will be once they get out into that break. So anyone with that person here? A small number. We're, we're inland people, aren't we? <laughs> the second person was standing there with a surf rod twice as long as, uh, as themselves, and uh, they... They were looking at the same scene, thinking, I reckon the fish will be out there somewhere behind the break. And so organising their, um, their tackle so that they are able to fizz out the, the, the whatever you call that. See, I'm not a fisherman. Fizzing out the, the bait. <laughs> Thank you. Getting lots of answers. Don't, you don't throw out the rod, do you? Some, <laughs> someone down here said that. Clearly a fishing ignoramus like me. But thinking to themselves, this is the perfect place to fish. The third person stood looking at exactly the same scene. And uh, this person was uh, fearful of water and wondered what terrors might lurk behind or in the uh, icy blue depths. What leviathan there might be just waiting to come and grab them from underneath. Three people looking at exactly the same scene. Three people with totally different perspectives on what was actually there in front of them. The question that we're going to think about this morning is, when you look at Jesus, who do you see? When you look at Jesus, who do you see? A prophet, but not in the order of Muhammad, some would say that. An outstanding teacher akin to other religious teachers of the past, many would say that. A good man with exemplary morals and outstanding ethical demands, but often lofty and unattainable, many people would say that. Or as we declare as the people of God, the Son of God, God's expression of love and grace to us who came to bring us reconciliation with God. That's the question that we're going to think about as we come into this season of Christmas. It's Jesus, but who do you see? Let's have a look at that next slide. Elijah, I'm going to keep him on his toes this morning. It's Jesus, but who do we see? We're going to talk about Simeon. There's a picture up here of someone who may or may not have looked like Simeon who, who met Jesus when he was just 40 days old, a righteous and devout man who was in the temple when Jesus was brought into the temple. And the story of Simeon's encounter with Jesus can be found in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 35. And Cheryl's going to bring that reading for us today. Thank you, Cheryl. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. 
Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your servant, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Thank you, Cheryl. And thank you, Nick. There's a, a subtle temptation in this passage. The temptation, of course, is to skip over those first few verses that talk about worship and rituals in ancient Judaism, in ancient times that have little significance or relevance to us today as Christians, but we would be all the poorer for it if we did. And while it might be true to say that we don't follow the requirements for circumcision on the eighth day as the Jewish people did in those days, and we don't have purification rites or uh, need to pay a tax of five shekels or a, a, a gift to the temple of five shekels to redeem the firstborn, it's actually worth sitting for a few moments in this place as we paint a picture around what happened when Jesus was presented and Simeon met him. It's worth sitting there because first it's plainly obvious from the biblical text that God's choice of Joseph and Mary was not a random act. God didn't think to himself one day, I'm going to send Jesus into the world. Who am I going to find? Let me just kind of choose some parents. You'll do. Who did I pick? Uh, that's not how it worked. God was very particular and very careful in who he chose. Despite being obviously poor, as is evidenced by the offering that they brought, a, a, a couple of birds, Joseph and Mary uh, were both devout, they were pious, and they were faithful in their observation of the Jewish law, and that mattered greatly to God. And perhaps this is an under, understated factor in God's preparation of the next generation of Christian leaders that he's raising up even in our time. For the role of Christian parents should never be understated. What better parents could God have chosen than to trust his son into Joseph and Mary's care? And perhaps there's another point of application we can make this morning before we actually get to the crux of our text. And it's helpful for us to observe how people in ancient times went about the business of expressing their faith. How people like Joseph and Mary, who were righteous, devout and faithful people, actually lived out their faith. And by looking at their example, ask ourselves, what does it mean for us? How do we live our faith in our times? 
how do we express our devotion to God in a way that will be pleasing to him? That's an interesting question to reflect on, isn't it? There's much that we might learn from their example. Our story of interest today, though, is more in the character of Simeon and rather sadly, we don't know a lot about him. There's no backstory, no uh, history that we have. Apparently, uh, when we meet him in the scriptures, he is an old man who has been spending his time in the temple precinct waiting for God to reveal the Messiah to him. We don't know much, but we do know four things about Simeon. Let's pop these up on the screen too. The first one is uh, he was a righteous and devout man. Now that could not be said of everyone in Israel at the time. Simeon was clearly a man who diligently sought God. And if you think about this, and I've asked this question on a few occasions, what does a wise person look like? What does a righteous and devout person look like? There's a kind of a, a sense of peace and contentment about them, isn't there? A reliance on God, a trust in his purposes, a determination to do his will. And that would be true of Simeon. We're told by Luke that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a code word, if you like, for, uh, for God to reveal the Messiah, for the coming of God's salvation. The next slide after the one we could have just popped up there, Elijah. The Holy Spirit was upon This is interesting in so much as this, this account by Luke uh, predates Acts and the coming of the Holy Spirit post the resurrection of Christ. In some senses, it's an Old Testament expression of God's Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And the fourth point here it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, I often wonder how this uh, might have played out in Simeon's mind. You know, Simeon kind of uh, walked perhaps a little despondently to the temple said, Lord, is it going to be today? You know, my arthritis is playing up a little bit. I'm getting older and older. When is it going to happen? I can't keep going like this much longer. Well, we don't have any record of those kinds of conversations. Did he ever doubt God's promise? Did he ever wonder whether he heard it wrong? We don't know the answer to those questions, but we do discover after he met Jesus that he was completely at ease and at peace about God's timing for his life. This much is obvious because on the day that Jesus was brought by his parents into the temple, the Holy Spirit moved uh, within Simeon, he met the family, he took the baby Jesus in his arms and he made the prophetic utterance, which we'll have here on the screen, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. Isn't that a great statement? You know, my life is complete. Every now and again I use that kind of throwaway phrase, uh, you know, you might get a wonderful gift for Christmas, the very thing you wanted, a brand new you fill in the gaps. I won't tell you what mine is. Um, because you would all laugh. Um, but I might say, <laughs> you know, now that my life is complete. Well, Simeon's statement's way, way deeper than that. He was acutely and fundamentally content with the knowledge that his days were absolutely in the hands of God. What a wonderful place to be, to know that your hands, your days, are absolutely in the hands of God. Many years ago when I was teaching uh, overseas, I had a student whose name was Willie, Willie Gator, uh, a fellow from down Papua way somewhere, I think he was, 
And, and Willie experienced a, a tragedy that he had a lot of trouble figuring his way through. He had uh, got to know a youth pastor in his church, a young guy who was on fire for God, a tremendous minister of the word. And uh, Willie heard the news that this young guy had been killed in a, motorbo- a, 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 what do you call it? a motorboat accident. He was skiing or something like that and something happened. He died in the accident. And Willie came and he said, David, I don't understand this. I don't get why would God allow this to happen. I understand we live in a sinful world. I understand bad things happen in our world. I understand all of that. But why would God let someone who is so full of life and promise and vigour and enthusiasm, such a good minister of the gospel, why why would that happen? What would you say if you were asked that question? It's one of those, shep- uh, those kinds of questions that risks shipwrecking faith, isn't it? People wrestle with those questions and if you're not able to find some kind of resolution, they, they are the sorts of questions that can run the risk of shipwrecking faith. And so Willie and I engaged on this topic over a number of weeks, months, and then one day Willie came belting into the classroom. It's, it, it's a, one of those things I still have a memory of because his face had transformed. He'd had an epiphany from God. That's the best way you could describe it. The Lord had spoken to him. He said, David, I get it, I get it. I said, what do you get? He said, I now have figured it out. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about his providence. It's about his sovereignty. It's not about us. And so I can rest confidently knowing that this young guy who'd passed away in such tragic circumstances was in the hands of God and that God would use that to bring blessing to others. The timing was fine as far as God was concerned. What a wonderful realisation. And here in this uh, passage, we meet someone who has the same kind of uh, hard experience of God. Simeon, not a young guy, a guy who'd lived to a ripe old age, but understood, having seen the Messiah, everything was complete for him and so the timing of his death was of no consequence. He was totally surrendered to God's will and totally obedient to God's timing and therein, if you want to put a pot on the stove and pour some ingredients in and try and create contentment, there's your answer. Submission to God's will, submission to God's timing, stir them both together and what have you got? Peace and contentment. And Simeon had that, a righteous and devout man. And then in verse 30, Simeon went on to say, For my eyes have seen your salvation. The question that frames our thinking today is, what did Simeon see when he looked at Jesus? The answer is, I have seen your salvation. The baby he saw was the one through whom God planned to reconcile the world. There's an interesting play on words here. Uh, The Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua with an H on the end. The Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua without the H on the end. Jesus, salvation, the same word, come from the same root, in fact. And Simeon said, I have seen your salvation. This is the one who you are going to save. This 40-day-old baby is the Messiah that God promised. And it's important to notice too where Simeon made this declaration. It was in the temple. It wasn't in the Holy of Holies. Clearly, he could not have been in there because Mary couldn't have gone in there. Probably the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women. But nevertheless, this declaration was made at the very heart of the worship life of Israel. Now, you know how this works. Let's just say 
uh, you were a politician and uh, you were wanting to announce a new infrastructure project. You were going to revive the declining rural township of um, Brocklesby. Let's go on the New South Wales side today. And so your government, of whom you are a representative, is going to invest in the next big thing that's going to revive Brocklesbury and bring work and employment and fame and fortune. Ostriches. No one's ever thought of that before. <laughs> and so your media minder says to you, get the high-vis vest on. Get the white hat on. Get out there in front of the cameras. Make your announcement. Be present where it's going to happen. Get the polished shovel and turn the first sod, right? We know how that works. And I make light a little of the process. But in all seriousness, it's very significant that Simeon made this declaration that Jesus was announced as the salvation right at the core, at the heart of where Israel worshipped. Jesus would be salvation for the people whose religious life centred at this place, salvation that God had prepared and moreover than that, uh, on top of that, if you like, God not only prepared this salvation, but he didn't do it in secret either. It was before others. As Simeon said in the next verse, salvation has been prepared in the sight of all people. It's not a hidden saviour. Jesus is not a secret saviour. John 1.14, passage will pop up on the screen too. Uh, in the Gospel of John, John said, uh, the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Sentiments that John echoed later when he wrote 1 John 1 1. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim uh, concerning the word of life. In other words, we've seen Jesus. We've seen him with our eyes. We've touched him with our hands. He's not some kind of secret, spiritual, kind of ghosty type person who hangs out there. He's real, incarnated, living amongst us, a saviour who was seen. And the evidence that Jesus presented throughout his life was that he truly was the saviour, convincing evidences. And yet, as we know, many refuse to believe just as they do refuse to believe today. As we move on to verse 35 in this passage, we see Simeon noted two groups who would benefit from the coming of the Messiah. Jesus would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for the people Israel. Glory for your people Israel. Luke, Luke who's writing to a Gentile audience, makes it really clear that Jesus was not just going to be a Jewish saviour. He reaffirmed the significance of Jesus to Gentile believers. But the question I'd like to think about for a minute is what does it mean when Luke said, or when Simeon said, rather, for glory to your people Israel? For glory to your people Israel. Israel's been in the news quite a bit lately, hasn't it? You could hardly ignore uh, the news of what's been happening in the Middle East and what's been happening in the Middle East recently is just a continuation of what's been happening in the Middle East for the past 70 years and well beyond that. And about you, I wonder if you've ever wondered why it is there is such hatred from Israel's Arab neighbours that expresses itself in the often stated 
publicly stated desire to wipe Israel off the map. Why is that the case? Have you ever wondered why it is that anti-Semitism, which even in our country is, uh, is a thing we have to deal with, is such a constant and pervasive reality? It's not a new phenomenon. It's not something that emerged even just with the establishment of the modern state of Israel back in the 1940s. Anti-Semitism has been with us for a long, long, long time. I remember walking very somberly through the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, reading some of the history before the 1940s and what was happening uh, with Jewish people in the preceding century, centuries. What's going on there? Why is that the case? It's been clear for years that what sits underneath the tensions in the Middle East is not just your normal national rivalries. It's not just jealousy over land. It's not simple dissatisfaction with the geopolitical arrangements that were established with the modern state of Israel. If that had been the case, we might reasonably expect some kind of resolution through mediation or compromise, something which has failed time and time and time again. No matter how you understand this conflict in the Middle East and where the right and the wrong might lie, and there are many views on this, I wonder whether actually there might be a spiritual foundation to this which is linked to what Simeon said here in Luke 2.32, that the Messiah, the baby born in Bethlehem and presented in the temple at 40 days of age, would be glory to Israel. Let me just explain how that could be. This idea that uh, there would be some sort of glory for Israel predates Simeon's statement. It actually goes right back into the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3, for example, here on the screen, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. This is the prophecy made by the prophet Isaiah many, many years before Jesus, pointing to the coming Messiah, pointing to a time where there would be glory for Israel. See, Isaiah says, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And the wonderful promises. Promises spoken over God's people, the covenant people Israel. So you can understand how it would be that Israel, the people of Israel, would have gathered to themselves this idea that something special is going on in us. God's going to use us in some way. God's going to make us glorious. Nations are going to come to us. How easy that tips over into pride, of course. And perhaps uh, this glory didn't work out quite the manner that some in Israel may have conceived because we know many in Israel in Jesus' time were looking for a political king who would come and thump the Romans and gather the nation together and then all of the nations would look at them and say, wonderful, glorious, terrific. That's not how it worked out. But Simeon's statement remains a statement of accuracy in that Jesus is the glory of Israel. For Jesus, Jesus who was born a Jew in the rural back streets of Israel is the one through whom Israel would perform her service to the world. Does that make sense? Jesus who was born a Jew in the most humble of circumstances is the one through whom Israel had been prepared by God to bring glory to the world, the conduit that God would use to bless all nations. Everything that God had done through Israel before the coming of Jesus was to prepare them to be 
the conduit through whom he would bring salvation. He wasn't recognised by many in Israel in Jesus' day and that would be true of many in Israel through to this day. But the reality that is spoken of in John 4.22 can't be ignored and that is that salvation comes through the Jews. And throughout history, God has been using his covenant people to bring about his purposes in ways that we don't fully understand and God yet will use his people in ways that we don't fully understand. We can nibble around the edges and try and get some clarification in that respect. What is God going to do with the modern state? How is that going to play out in God's salvation history? There's lots of ideas, lots of theories, lots of connections back into the Old Testament. Well worth considering. So what has all this got to do with the ongoing conflicts in the Middle East or the scourge of anti-Semitism? I wonder whether it actually is that on a spiritual level, Satan has no delight in seeing Jesus come into the world. In fact, Satan did everything that he could to prevent Jesus once he came into the world. Next week, we're going to talk about Herod. And Herod's inquiry, you know, tell me, wise men, where is this baby that I might go worship him? What a load of trot. Herod's intention was not to go and worship, it was to get rid of him. And if he could have done that, would have fitted perfectly with Satan's agenda, who had no truck with this Messiah, no truck with this salvation that was being brought by Jesus. And Satan wanted to be done with the one who was ultimately going to upset his own plans to rule, and yet he was defeated. In fact, it's, you could say that Satan's victory was snatched from him in that moment. Defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory when Jesus rose from the grave. And so in his vexatious, bitter and violent response, Satan's like an indiscriminate bully who destroys anyone and everything because of his unrequited jealousy with a special animosity for the people through whom God brought salvation into the world. And for sure we can say Jews today carry little responsibility for what happened in history. Indeed, many modern Jews are as secular and as far from God as the average Australian. But collectively, I wonder whether the Jewish people bear the animosity of Satan because they are the people through whom God performed this ministry to the world, this glory for Israel. As a theory. In the final few verses of this passage, Simeon went on to issue a series of sombre warnings and we don't have time to deal with all of those today. But in summary, he highlighted the reality that this baby who was to be God's promised salvation would be a stumbling block for many. He would cause a division. Simeon prophesied that Jesus would be one upon whom people would be divided, that there would be rejection and that a person's heart response to Jesus would ultimately be an indicator of their heart response to God. In a deeply disturbing statement, he spoke directly to Mary and noted that a sword will pierce your heart too. What a statement that is. We're familiar, of course, with the New Testament story. We know that even at this time of Jesus' birth, which our world's very comfortable with celebrating babies as fun because they don't make too many demands. But Simeon was foretelling a time when Mary would be standing at the foot of the cross watching the crucifixion of her son. A sword will pierce your heart too. It's good, I think, to keep the perspective of Easter in, in our minds as we've come to the celebration of Christmas. 
But on a lighter note, let's finish with something a little lighter. The story of Simeon is a, is a good one for us to reflect on as we approach Christmas because it's a wondrous picture of fulfilled expectation and realised hope. Simeon was waiting for something and God fulfilled that hope that he had. Though our vantage point is different from Simeon's, we see Jesus as the fulfilment of all of the things that the Old Testament anticipated Scripture is the backdrop against which God reveals the glory of Jesus' birth, of his life and death and resurrection. The Lord's Messiah has come to comfort and save his people. And like Simeon, we rejoice in his coming, during Advent especially, but all through the year. And like Simeon, we long for that day when he comes again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, we long for your return to bring about the fulfilment of all that you have promised. But now we live in that in-between time where your kingdom is breaking into the affairs of our world. We thank you, God, for the evidence that we see of that. We thank you that you've called us to participate in that and we ask that you'll help us to be faithful through that. Like Simeon, Simeon, we ask that you will help us to be submitted to your will and trust in your timing and so know peace and contentment in all of our activities, in all of our engagements, in all of the challenges, trials, joys and griefs that we experience. Might we know your love and grace in all those places. We thank you for this example of a righteous and pious servant of God. We thank you for your scriptures and what they teach us and ask that you might continue to bless us together today in your name. Amen.